0: Yo, welcome in to episode 97 of the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. This is one of those episodes that just kind of happened where I wasn't expecting what I got. And I was like, you know what, this needs to live on in another place at another time and I need to just go where this is taking me. And so I did. Here's the background of it. Oh, oh, before I tell you the background of it, let me tell you that we have new sponsors for the podcast today.
1: Yay!
0: My boy Bill Guidi reached out to me and was like, Hey, I know that sock season is coming up. I know a lot of people listen to your podcast. I want Cork and Carey to be on the podcast. And I was like, for you? Yes. That is something that we can definitely do. So here's what Bill wants you to know about Cork and Carey. Southside Traditions is 1988. It's right by the ballpark. So if you're going to Sox games this year, go have a beer there. Be like, hey, I heard about Bill's place on the podcast, now everyone kind of knows about Cork and Carry, but it is nice to know that they have they care enough about this podcast and want to be involved with it. The Western Avenue Cork offers one of the city's best beer gardens. I'm sure that you've probably been there for the Southside Parade. It's the 50-yard line of the Southside Irish Parade and all St. Patrick's Day events. Cork and Carry, com. If you want to find out more about Cork and Carrie, thank you to Bill and Cork and Carrie for being a sponsor of the podcast. I'm very, very happy to have them on board. And it's weird because I kind of said that I wasn't going to do advertising on the podcast. This season was, I'm dubbing as season two of the podcast. But if it's people that I know, that And they really like the product the way the Bill likes it. I'm all for it. So thank you to Court and Carey for being a part of it. The other sponsor of today's podcast, this one kind of came out of left field too. I'm one of those people because I'm, I think I'm getting older or maybe it's just me getting back to something that made me more comfortable. I interact a lot on my phone. You probably do it too. When I prep for shows, I don't like using the phone to write my notes down. I don't find it to be as complete. And honestly, I don't retain information as well on those podcasts. So I've been writing stuff down. I've gotten back to working off of a legal pad. That used to be the way that I would outline shows. And when I was a producer, I used to work off of a legal pad and all this stuff. And I found that that has become a, a rarity it's hard to find legal pads when you need them. So, there's this company called Autumn Paper Company. Autumn Paper Company. And I know, it's 2020 and I'm talking about paper. Like it's Dunder Mifflin, but basically they're Dunder Mifflin, but here in Chicagoland. Paper at Comcast.net. Or if you just want to call them, 773-551-0237. They do office supplies. They do copy paper. They do cleaning supplies, furniture, whatever you need. One-stop shop, Autumn Paper Company. Ask for George. He will treat you well. He treated me well, and I got me a stack of legal pads. And I just, as I came into the SCORE studios today, I put them in my locker and I couldn't. I feel so happy that I know that I've got a bunch of legal pads in there for when I have ideas and when I have shows. So welcome in Cork and Carry and Autumn Paper Company because they're going to be our, our sponsors for the next month, and I couldn't be happier. Okay. Oh, one more. Cork if you're planning your St. Patrick's Day event. Hopefully the weather will stay as nice as it is when I'm recording. I walked in here on what according to my car dashboard, was a 70-degree day. You know how I know it was 70 degrees in Chicago? Lakeshore Drive traffic. Bad, 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 bad. But it's cool. It's nice to see people, like, throw their parkas to the side and just walk around the streets and all that good stuff. Back to the podcast, the whole reason that you're listening to this thing. So I, I wanted to interview Doug Bruno. The reason I wanted to interview Doug is because DePaul's women's team has been synonymous with winning for almost two decades. They've made the NCAA tournament 17 straight times. It'll be 18 by the time you're listening to this, more than likely. As as I'm recording, I'm literally hanging out downtown so I can go back to the South Loop to watch them play in the semifinal game of the Big East tournament at Wintrust Arena. I was an undergrad at DePaul. Doug's been there forever. So I've known Doug for a really long time. And initially I was interviewing him for my podcast that I do at the score, Loho daily. And I just wanted to talk about how good the team was this year. So to be honest, be hundred percent honest with you. Some of this stuff is going to be dated, but not, a, not all of it. Not most of it. Honestly, I keep saying honestly, like I'm not honest. I am honest. I'm honest, Abe. The thing that, that made me think that it rose to the level of House of L is about 10 minutes in to our conversation. And I, in my mind, I was like, we're going to talk for 10 minutes and I'm going to do a podcast on it, and that'll be that. We started talking about basketball in great detail. And whenever you get a, a coach talking about their system, I've always found it to be extremely interesting. So it was at that point that I said, I'm going to let this ride, and I'm going to maybe take it to different places that I wouldn't on the Loho Daily podcast. Doug's a good person to talk about the history of Chicago basketball, especially prep basketball, because of his background, which you'll hear inside the interview. But being able to pick his brain about the game and understanding that DePaul's women's team was doing innovations that we are now seeing being done at the NBA but they were doing it 30 years ago is really interesting to me. Their team that's all about five players that can shoot threes and get up and down the floor and take shots early in the shot clock like that sort of thing. The stuff that you see now living in the NBA. So Doug and I got into that. We talked about Ben Wilson, we talked about great high school players. We talked about why Chicago basketball is the way that it is, why we have so much pride in it, the all-star game. It was just a really good conversation. So I extended it. And what I thought was going to be a 10-minute interview turned into a 30-minute interview, which is why I'm glad that you took the time to listen to it. He's got over 700 wins. He's been at DePaul for 35 years. His team is poised to go to the tournament yet again. They're probably going to make a Sweet 16. He's a really interesting guy with some south side roots. I know that that Doug was a White Sox fan, but changed his allegiance, I want to say, after the strike in 94. So there's a lot here to sink your teeth into. And if you like good old-fashioned basketball conversation, this is the episode for you. Episode 97 brought to you by Cork & Carey and the Autumn Paper Company, Doug Bruno. Big picture things are fine. Little picture things are, you you lost the last game against Marquette. So is that a good thing for a team entering into a conference tournament where you, you maybe get your nose bloodied a little bit?
1: Well, I think anything that happens when you coach, you have to turn it into a good thing. And losing is not something any coach or player really ever wants to see have happen. And at the same time, once you didn't do the job, you have to learn from it and move on. So I don't know if there's any real answers to that question, Lawrence, that you need to lose to be good in a tournament. Uh, you know, sometimes it's better to win, sometimes it's better to lose. And I think we'll find out.
0: This team this year, there are a lot of people talking about you guys being a sleeper once you get to the NCAA tournament. What's been the most refreshing thing about this season so far for you?
1: Well, I think it always starts with senior leadership. And Shante Stonewall and Kelly Campbell are just two really special seniors. And um, they've, they've just really – they're very competitive people. They're good people. And they're talented people. So, I mean, it's just been – I mean those are the, the those are the people we're really gonna miss after this season. They've just been really two special seniors. So I think that starts with the seniors. And then the fact that um you know, we, we can we have the ability to score at five positions. We just have to you know, I, I don't know that we were even close to having brought it all together yet. The actual actual cohesion. It's not like we're a bad team from a chemistry perspective, we have a lot of good chemistry, but we got five people that can score the ball and you know just bringing that all together I still thought is a work in progress it hasn't been done yet
0: it's It's so interesting because you have so many players that that go for twenty in a right. game that there there's a lot of different options that you can use so so even at this point in the season. How do you get them to maximize the fact that there are a bunch of scorers on the floor?
1: Well, you know, I just talked about that from a scoring perspective. And and now I'm going to even, I mean, I'm going to switch gears a little bit with you. And, And I really believe that good defensive teams, you play better defense when you're playing solid, constructive, good offense. And you play better, you know, Offense. When you're playing good defense, you play better defense. When you're playing good offense, I I think the two go hand in hand. It's like when you're really derelict of duty on the defensive side of the ball and the rebounding side of the ball, as we were in the Marquette game. You know, it's not that we lost to Marquette; it's that Marquette just, you know, threw us around from a rebounding perspective. You know, that's that's. You know, defense and rebounding is what travels well. It's how you win road games during the season. Defense and rebounding is how you win in the NCAA tournament. It's it's you know it's it's one and out basketball from this point forward. And so, I, I think we got to value it. when you have people that score the ball easily. There's a tendency to think well. All right, no, no worries. We're gonna and and they have a coach that lets them shoot quickly. You got to mm-hmm. remember, Lawrence. DePaul ball is predicated on quick shooting, and I believe in quick shooting. You can't score the ball if you don't shoot the ball, but that means you're giving up the ball to the opponent more often than other other programs or other styles of coaching. So you got to be better defensively in rebounding. So I, I think there's a. You know, yes, there's a the cohesion we have to bring together offensively. I, I don't think that's been an issue. I think the people are, you know our players are are really into the shoot it or share it concept. But then defensively, I think they got a value with a greater degree of urgency and understanding the defense and rebounding side of the ball.
0: When did you start to develop the, this kind of quick shooting? I'm okay with the green light. Be beyond the arc offense. When did you feel like it really took hold in Lincoln
1: Park? Well, I, I think we began doing that back in the Chicago Hustle days, Lawrence. I mean, you're not. I mean, we coached Chicago Hustle in 1979 and '80. It was a WBL. That whole that entire league is in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. It was a great effort uh, to make women's basketball go. We didn't have the NBA behind us like the WNBA does, but it was a great effort. We played our games in Alumni Hall, three to 5,000. We averaged. We were, we were on WGN-TV, which was the ESPN of its day, because ESPN didn't exist yet. We were covered by Chicago Tribune and, and sometimes sports beat writers, Chelsea and Lacey Banks, covered us. But back in those days, as soon as I was a young coach and I was confronted with a 24-second clock, You know, you you think you're going to tempo the game with a 24-second clock. I mean, I I thought that was kind of foolhardy to be waiting into the clock, and then you're taking a worse shot at the end of the clock than you were at the beginning. If you're going to take a a bad shot at the end of the clock, why not take a good shot early? So that's really – and we didn't even have the three-point shot then, but we did lead – we led that league in 11 offensive categories back in 79 and 80. So, you know, that's kind of where it all kind of took hold. I was blessed. To, I would have nothing in basketball without Ray Meyer. So I mean, Ray gave me a chance to come to DePaul. He gave me a scholarship when, you know, I, I was just I'm so blessed to be here. And if it weren't for Ray Meyer, I wouldn't be here. And so I got to play under a great, great coach and a great teacher of the game. And he really taught me along with my high school coach, who actually played Dick Flay's, who played for Ray. So I learned. The, I learned the foundation fundamentals of the game from Coach Meyer and Coach Flays. Frank McGrath was his assistant. Frank McGrath, Ray's assistant. Frank McGrath was won 800 games in the Chicago Catholic League before he became Ray's assistant. So I had great foundation teaching as a player. But then Gene Sullivan at Loyola of Chicago, who had also coached Austin Carr back at Notre Dame when Notre Dame was scoring a bunch of points, and Austin was leading the nation in scoring. You know, I went from my own quick shooting philosophy out of the WNBA at the twenty four second clock to working with Gene Sullivan who was into quick shooting back with the Lyola Ramblers from eighty to eighty eight when we went to a sweet sixteen in eighty five with Alfred Rick Hughes and those guys. So, you know, that's kinda how it all is is, is evolved through the years. Well, I think that it's not that was not a short answer once.
0: No, it's I'm fine with you going as long as you want. I, I like that because to me it it shows that there was creativity even back in the 70s and 80s where people were looking to change the geometry of the floor. And now, even at the NBA level, we are seeing that play out more prevalently. I would imagine that that makes you pretty proud when you see teams like Golden State or teams like Houston that are using some of those basic philosophies to win basketball games.
1: Well, It's really kind of funny because you know, when you're, when you choose to become a coach, you have to, the first thing you have to choose to, you have to develop a very thick skin because every single human being in the stands all knows how to do it better than you. You know, whether, whether it's a, it's a parent, a spouse, a child, you know, everybody you know knows that you should have done something different. So you, you got to understand that, that people are going to second guess every move you make from the moment you step onto the chair. So that's life and coaching. But then, you know, it, it's, I'm laughing because people, the number of people I've had through the years both laugh at how we play or, you know, some really good, serious coaches question why and how we play. You know, coaches that I get along with and I'm really good friends with and that I admire. But, you know, through the years, they they question how we would play. And now all of a sudden, you know, it, it, I, I'm just kind of laughing on the other side of my mouth here because you, know, you guys were all laughing. Now, now, now it's now it's vogue and and so you know now it's all, all okay. But even still, today, when we take some of the shots we take as quickly as we take them, there's still people that cringe. I mean, it's 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 just one of those situations where you know you got kind of have to understand what we're trying to do. And, and Lawrence, the thing about the three-point play is all coaches that talk about offensive philosophies. You can't talk to a coach about offensive philosophy without hearing them talk about spacing, spacing, spacing. There is no spacing without the threat of five players on the floor being able to make a three. The second you've got one player that cannot make the three or an outside shot, you're going to, as a defensive coach, it's almost your job to load up the paint or send a second defensive player to a really good offensive player on the other team. So spacing is created. The three point shot, we use it to create spacing. At the same time we preach here at the ball, paint touches, paint touches, and and we don't even call I don't even paint touches anymore. I'm starting to call them arc touches. You know, get the ball deep into the paint, not just to the free throw line paint, but you know, paint touches, rim you get the ball to the rim, you get the ball to the basket. Three good things are going to happen. You can make a basket. You can get yourself fouled. You can you can draw a secondary defender to create something back on the outside. So you, you're you're going to have more good things happening with paint touches than you are with just letting the threes fly. So it, it it's no different than a football coach who's trying to, to you know to develop the ground game to be able to open up the, the let it fly game, or the coaches that spread the field and let it fly, but still have to have a ground game. You have to have balance in your offense. So we still work very, very hard to get paid touches.
0: So when it comes to you recruiting a player, how does that transition work? Because I would imagine that there are a bunch of high school programs that can't can't give you five players that can shoot from outside the arc, and you're maybe taking the best player off of that team. How do you get a player who comes from a system that that isn't similar to yours, but you can see their skills fitting in your system to transition into what you want to do.
1: Well, I, we really do analyze. First of all, once when it comes to recruiting, there's a this I'm going to talk about something right now that that I think is really. But recruiting is the life a lifeblood of all programs, and we work very hard to get the best players in the country, the same players that Coach Orium at UConn gets. Those players generally do say no to us. Um, and, you know, when they have the opportunity to go to a, a UConn or a Stanford or, you know, one of those schools that has established themselves as there's about four to eight teams that have established themselves as one of the elite. And so we try to get those players. But when those players say no to you, then we have to find players that are going to be competitive. That's what we're trying to beat. You have to find players who are going to be competitive or or that you could develop into what some of those some of the elite high school players are coming out of high school you want to try to find players that you can develop into being equal or greater than by the time they're done with four years of development in college so what we look for though everybody thinks athleticism Lawrence is running and jumping and believe me coach Bruno here loves quick athletes fast athletes, high-flying, jumping athletes. I really do believe in quickness and jumping ability and and speed. There's no question that I believe in those areas of the game. We call that here at DePaul run, run and jump athleticism. Very important. But the ultimate athleticism in all great athletes transcending all sports is how quick are an athlete's eyes. I, we call it visual athleticism here at the ball. And visual athleticism is how quick it goes from an athlete's eyes to their bodily movements. You know, your, your body's movements are triggered by your eyes. Your eyes tell your body where to move, where to go. So when a running back hits a hole, you know, they're not, they're not booging to the hole. Their eyes are telling them there's a bigger space to the left and a, and a smaller space to the right. That's all visual. Every single Major League Baseball player that earns their way into Major League Baseball cannot be a hitter without unbelievable visual athleticism. The ability to hit a baseball in that short amount of period of time, every one of those guys has visual athleticism. That's why you have fat hitters and big, tall hitters and skinny hitters and, and little hitters. You know, you got the Heck Wilsons of the world. you got the Babos of the world. I mean, you know, that's visual athleticism. So... We really look to find athletes that are visually athletic. And then we also would love them to be visually athletic and run and jump athletic. But then we ask the question, can they make a three, or can't they? And to your point and your question, some it's obvious that they're going to be great three-point shooters in college. But there's some. We just graduated a player named Marte Grays from Martin Luther King High School in Detroit, Michigan, state champion many times, um, with Bill Winfield, a great coach over there. He's the Dorothy Gators of Detroit. And at any rate, she never took a shot outside two feet at Martin Luther King. But then you study, you know, you study her free throw, you study her form. You know, you know she's got visual athleticism, you know she's got run and jump athleticism. And then you start studying her shooting form and you can see that, that sometimes a, a young player from high school who's never been made to shoot at three or allowed to shoot at three will be able to shoot. Back to my Loyola days, there was a great player we had with that El Hughes team, a player by the name of Andre Babel from Simeon High School. His great coach was Bob Hambrick. Bob was a very good friend of mine. But, Bob, this is pre-three-point shooting days. Bob didn't believe in anybody taking an outside shot. You know, you get this, like Al McGuire, you get to the rim, you get fouled, you know, maybe take some outside shots against the zone. So I had to watch Andre play maybe, maybe 60 games shooting. That's when you could watch him all year round. You you know, watch Andre play 60 games and take one jump shot a game. Well, over 60 games, you could figure out that Andre was a really, really good shooter. So, the, the, you know, you kind of have to study it in the in the process of recruiting.
0: There's a, a big connection like all between Loyola and DePaul going, you know, decades back and you're one of those connections. I don't think I asked you this a, a couple years ago, but what was it like for you to see the men's team there go to the final four?
1: No, it was tremendous. It it it's um, you know, I'm a DePaul guy. So everything I do is 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 DePaul, DePaul, DePaul. But still you're also a Chicago guy and and you live here if DePaul's not going to the final four, why why wouldn't you want another Chicago team to be successful? Just like when Chris Collins' team was successful at Northwest back a few years back and then and then Porter's team. I still I still live five hundred steps from my Jim chip door um because I never moved. I live in a two flat over there. We we, we moved in a two flat over there in nineteen eighty. I still sit live in the same Chicago two flat, Rogers Park. That I lived in in 1980. So, you know, I lived 500 steps from Loyola's Jim Door Porter. You know, Porter was a player when I was at Loyola. And the interesting Porter Moser story is: is Tony Brown he was at Creighton, and Tony took Porter as a walk-on from Benedict. You know, and we were at Loyola, and I really liked the kid from uh, instead of Porter. Porter was a great high school shooter. Uh, I liked the kid from Gordon Tech High School, the Catholic League Player of the Year, named Eddie Stritzel. Eddie Stritzel had a, a Chris Mullen like game. He's a lefty. So I thought, I thought Eddie was the better of the two players, you know, that of that kind of player that we, you know, from, from the, the Chicago area. So at Loyola, we took Eddie Stritzel and Creighton took Porter and then Porter, you know, went on to become a, a, earn a scholarship and become a great college basketball coach. Eddie Stritzel has become a, a state champion level um High school coach We're coaching women out at Nazareth right now, but Eddie got Eddie got into a car accident and really didn't. He had, ended up transferring to um, I think mean, it was um, I think it was Rosary, if I'm not mistaken. And had a great NAIA career, but still, this is the visual athleticism. I thought, you know, back to recruiting. So I, I just thought that Eddie had, was a little bit more of a, a, a game had, had more of a game to him. Porter was a great shooter. And the three point play was just coming into play too. I mean, it was just starting back then. But ha- I'm I'm happy I'm happy for. Anybody you know that and you know it, it's it's just like any product I, I mean it, when when women's sports gets covered, any women's sports gets covered, it's good for all of us because it's hard to get people to cover women's sports.
0: Well, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with Tim Hardaway and and we were talking about Chicago basketball. you're someone who's seen it from the inside. You're a part of it as a player and as a coach. Is, is there anything that you think that is defining for Chicago basketball? And I'll just tell you, when the All-Star game was here, I was really warmed by how Chicago it felt. That, that they did a great job of kind of intertwining the history of prep basketball at, at the highest level of the NBA. It was a great feeling to watch all of the things that went into the preparation for the All-Star game.
1: No, I, the, the single simple word is toughness. Yeah, you know, I, I just think Chicago basketball players are tough basketball players, and it, it even transcends the leagues. The Chicago Public League players are tough. Chicago Catholic League players are tough. The suburban Catholic League players are tough. You know, you get out into the suburbs, and and you know you got some really really tough you know, really, really, really tough players out there. I've not seen the the young man from rolling meadows that everybody keeps talking about right now this but that, you know, but but Jalen Brunson a couple of years ago. But that, I mean this goes way, way back to you know my dad I remember my dad taking me to see Cassie Russell when Cassie was playing at Carver High School. I was about 11, 12 years old. Cassie was um older than me by about four or five years. So I got to see that that's the beginning of it for me. My dad took me to see down he used to take me to the State Tournament down in Huff Huff went back at Huff Gymnasium down in, in Champaign before it moved over to Assembly Hall. So I did get to – you know, I get to see, you know, some really talented players and then from moving out to the South Suburbs I got to grow up playing with some really, really tough South Side players like Lamar Thomas and, and Jim Ard were from Thornton High School. They won the you know state championship and then you know, from Thornton back in about sixty six, and then the, they actually changed school districts out there. They had, they they changed district brown boundaries. That's why Lloyd Bats went to Thornton, and his brother Boyd Batts went to Thorn Ridge, and then that's why all of a sudden Thorn Ridge kind of took over that 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 power place down in the southern suburbs. But you know, it, it was just to, to watch all those players, the Bloom, all the Bloom players, you know, translating from the, you know, Bloom was, was traditionally an Italian town, and, you know, you had the Berries of the world, and Frankie Sylvester, and Catholic, who played at Bradley, Berry played at Northwestern, and then you had know, the great African-American players that started playing down there at, at, at Bloom High School, from Richard Thomas to, to you know, McCoy. You know, to, it, it's just, you know, really, really kind of, Fun to be a part of. So there's been some great suburban toughness, but I, I just think when you think about Chicago basketball, you think toughness. I mean, I watched I watched Texas Tech come in here and play. You know, our, our DePaul team beat Texas Tech early in the season, and you know, here's a kid from Lincoln Park High School putting up, you know, whatever he put. <laughs> yeah, I think he had 25 or 26 points. Yep. Back at Wintrust, back in December. So I mean, I just think of the word toughness to me. Hardaway was one of the toughest. You know, you, you, you know the, the Hawkins, Hardaway. You know, I, I, I call that the era of the H's. Yeah, Hardaway, Hawkins, and um, you know, the, the, the kid from Lions, um, you know, at Hornacek. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you had, you know, you had three guys that made the NBA and Hardaway, Hornacek, Hardaway, Hornacek and, and and um, Hercy Hawkins. You know, you know that those were the the H guys that they were there. But through the years, I mean, I got the play against a kid by the name of Billy the Kid Harris. You know, Billy the Kid Harris out uh, of Dunbar High School was, was a you know a fabulous, fabulous player, a legendary player. Here at DePaul, on the woman's side, I think Kim Williams belongs in the conversation. I'm with, with you. With, with any of the great guy players, you know, Janet Harris, who played at Marshall and then went on to become an All-American at Georgia. I mean, I'd say Janet Harris and, and Kim Kim Williams. You know, Kim belongs with any of the of the guys that you talk about when you talk about the legends of 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 basketball or, you know, Isaiah Mark I mean there's just it's just the, the names
0: just don't they just keep going I'm glad you brought up Kim because I I was in school with Kim so and she would she would come and play noon ball with us and I was sitting there going wow she's she's one of the fastest people I've ever seen with a basketball in their hand
1: and and, there's, and there's a good example of, of unbelievable visual quickness Lawrence I mean as quick as her feet are you know her eyes see it so quickly and that's why she can start to raise you up and then all of a sudden you come up to block her shot when she's in, in mid dribble and she can, you know that it's not just the fundamental function of the crossover it's, it's her vision seeing you start to rise up as a defender and then she can she can break your ankles cross it over and pop it I mean, she's, I mean that that's back to the vision too
0: a phenomenal player. I don't mean to put you on the spot, Doug, but I was just curious, since we were talking a little bit of Chicago basketball history, do you have any Ben Wilson stories?
1: I actually do. Um, ben, you know, we were at Loyola at the time and we were recruiting Ben, you know, and, and it wasn't going to happen. Bob, Again, I told you, Bob Hamburg is a great friend of mine, and Bob loved to work. Our girls, when we first started our overnight camps, we started camps... I started camps when I was a woman's coach here at DePaul in 76, 77. There were day camps at DePaul Alumni Hall, and they really took off. And then Coach Jerry Sloan and I, because I, when I played at DePaul, Jerry and the Bulls practiced at DePaul, so I got to know Jerry when I was a collegiate player here at DePaul. And then Jerry asked if we could do camps together, so we did some camps together, Coach Sloan and I up at Angel Guardian. and then, And then we started our own overnight camp, and Bob Hambrick loved to work the camps, so I'm I'm now at Loyola Chicago, still running girls basketball camps, and Hambrick would work out at work at you know work at the work the camps. Uh, they were out at George Williams College at the time, and you know he asked, you know he just he just said, Coach, we might have you know Benji's really get going through a lot here, and, and it was already clear that we at Loyola were not going to get Ben Wilson. You know it was Bob uh, was very straightforward. It ain't coming to and You're not going to get this kid. So it wasn't even about him coming to Iowa, but you know, he asked if he could bring Ben out and actually, you know, let him stay out at the camp for a couple of days just to get him, just to you know, just to get him away from stuff. And you know, it wasn't like Bob was predicting anything bad stuff. It just it just the kid was going through a lot. So that you know, we actually with you know, Coach Hamburg actually had Benji out out at the camp. For a few days in the middle of the summertime. And then Andre Battle was his teammate. Andre Battle was from Simeon. So I'll never forget the day that, the dreaded day that, that you know, we, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it like it was the day that that John Kennedy got shot. Again, I'm not, you know, it, it's one of those things where you remember where you were at. You're practicing at an alumni gym at Iowa. And, you know, somebody came in, pulled Andre over, and Andre. Pablo was really, really shook up and ran out of the gym, and we all are wondering what's going on. And that's when, you know, Coach Sullivan stopped practice, and we all got informed about what had just happened out on the south side.
0: Wow! I thank you for that. That's a great story, Doug. I, I appreciate you because everyone that's involved in Chicago basketball, like especially with the All Star Game being in town. I, I've kind of been on a mission to get as many stories about Ben Wilson as I can to the public because there are a bunch of Chicago basketball fans, newer basketball, younger fans that don't know the legend. And I'm, I'm trying to do my best to, to educate them because I remember what I was nine and I remember I grew up on the south side in Roseland and I remember what it was like the day he died. So I'm glad that, that there are more people that are there around to share the story. The last thing I have for you. You've been at DePaul for 34 years. You've 17 straight NCAA tournaments, a bunch of final, a bunch of uh, sweet 16s. You have 700 wins. What does it mean for you to be doing this as a disciple of Ray Meyer, for you to be doing this at DePaul?
1: Well, I I just thank God every day. I mean, I just thank every day, God, every day for the opportunity that coach Ray Meyer gave me to be here because again, I would not be here if it were not for Coach Meyer. And then, you know, it, it's just one of those things where you really realize what, a, what what DePaul is all about. It's, 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 it's a school of the underdog. It's, it's DePaul, the best way to, I mean, we are an institution of first generation college students that that's the DePaul mission back to its founding by the Vincentian fathers. And, and so, you know, it 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 it, it really is the, the school of the underdog, and yet it's still just because it's the school of the underdog, it is still just an unbelievably great education for any any Chicago student to to, to get a degree from DePaul is a great great education, and you know I'm just honored to be able to say that, that I played here at DePaul. I'm honored to be able to say I've been blessed to be able to work here at DePaul Jean Lenti You know, I talk about Ray, but Jeannie Lenti was my first captain. And if Jeannie doesn't you know, she's she she taught me more about coaching as a captain and, and, and now she's one of the great athletic directors in this country, you know, and 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 you have to be working here with her every single day, watching her know every athlete's name, know watch her watch all the different sporting events, watch her raise money, watch her, I, I mean, develop programming, academic programming at, at that are that, combined, that make the student athlete whole to really understand what a great athletic director she is. But I mean, to be blessed to have these kinds of people and, and, you know, Dr. Patricia yours is another one, one my former great English teacher. And then she became the president of pace university and, and just, people. This, this DePaul place is all about the people, the best facilities. People can talk about facilities, but the best facility any institution can have are its people and DePaul has the absolute best people.
0: So that was Doug Bruno. Interesting guy. Great voice. I'm glad I got him on a landline. I did an interview the other day on the phone and I'm still trying to figure out whether or not I can share it with you because the sound quality is not great, but the content's great. So I'm working through some of that stuff right now, but the stories that he's able to tell, I've always found that basketball coaches are the most open when talking about their game and talking about strategy. I mean, the concept of ball don't lie is a pretty great concept and it's five players on the floor You know how they can, how one player can really affect it. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. So they're not as secret squirrel as the NFL is. And they're they're a little friendlier, just a little, than what you find in baseball. Although we're pretty lucky in Chicago, we've got a a couple of, of people in charge of baseball in Chicago that are very good at their job, which is talking about baseball, which is fun for me. So thanks to Doug Bruno for being on the podcast. If you'd like to email the podcast, you can do that. HouseofLpodcast at gmail.com. Seeing your emails, they've been falling off lately. People have been emailing about folks who've already been on the podcast. Like, you should have such and such on. Well, yeah, that person was on. Barry Rosner was on. Although he he is due for another visit, I was talking with Steve Rosenblum. I'd like to get Rosie on the pod to tell you the truth, and I know that Sierra Santos has got some news that I think in a few weeks will become evident, and maybe she'll uh, come and hang out on the podcast and return on the podcast. That would be great. I got some some heavy hitters coming up, and I'm excited. Like episode 100. Haven't recorded it yet, but it's been planned out for about a year. My best friend, Afio Wusu, who's a producer over at the jam, she was like, look, I'm getting episode 100. You been talking to all these other people. I'm your best friend. It should have been episode one. I'm getting episode 100. So she's going to be on episode 100. And if you ever wanted to know more about me, you're definitely going to find it out in that episode, because I imagine that my balls are going to be busted all episode long. Anyway, Alex did send this email to Podcast at gmail.com. Our emails are sponsored by Cork and Carry. Corkandcary.com. Find out how you can get together for St. Patrick's Day and be right there at the 50-yard line for the parade at Cork on the south side. On Western, shout-out to my man, Bill Guyde. Alex writes, Lawrence, I know this is long, but I hope it's worth a read. Well, we'll find out. I'm probably not going to read all this on the air. Just telling you right now, Alex. I first heard about your podcast when you plugged the Kyle Higgins episode on air, and I checked it out since I'm a big comic geek. I had no idea what I was getting into. And all this time later, it's an understatement to say that yours is my absolute favorite podcast. Oh, Thanks, Alex. Driving a semi-truck, I consume a lot of content, but House of L is where I go when I need inspiration or I want to laugh or when I want to stop feeling shitty about one thing or another. Every time I listen or re-listen to an episode, it becomes my new favorite, and I'm beginning to realize why. It's because the one thing they all have in common is you as the host. Oh. So instead of listening the many things I love about whatever guest ...are mostly fresh on my mind. I want to tell you about what I love about your podcast as a whole. I don't have a huge interest in media, but you have a wonderful gift, which is the ability to highlight human struggles and adversity and how they are able to turn it into pride and success. As a white man, I'll never have true understanding of the perspective of people of color, professional women, minorities, or people with different mental illnesses or struggles than my own. But listening to your podcast keeps those perspectives on the forefront of my consciousness, and I think that's extremely important for people like me and, frankly, just people in general. The lives and stories of your guests has actually had a big impact on how I go about my life in the last year, and I really just wanted to thank you. Alex, this email wasn't that long, and thank you. I appreciate that you got something out of it. I work in an industry of storytellers. It's great that when those people actually get to tell their own story and you get to hear what it was to get them from this place to this place and all this other stuff. So I'm glad I'm really, really glad because there are times when I think, does it matter that I do this podcast? Like I really like doing it and and a lot of people listen to it. But does it matter? And it's nice to know every now and again that it matters that someone like you is out there driving around this country in a truck and is getting something out of the episodes. And I'm very lucky that the people that sit down and do the podcast with me do it willingly. And just about everyone who has been on the podcast comes into it with a real idea of what it's about. And they share. And I love that they share. I love that they share their stories, their failures. Those are things that are important for my students to know. That you might see someone who you think is at the top of the profession and you need to understand the road that they had to go down to get to where they're at. So those are things that... Those are things that mean something to me. I I love just sitting down and talking with people too. And I've noticed throughout my career that a lot of the best conversations happen inside a media room while we're waiting on an athlete or a coach or inside a, a dugout when we're waiting on the team. Like those conversations, even last week, two weeks ago, when I was out in Arizona, and I was sitting in a bar with a bunch of sports writers. It was great. The stories that got told, the things that you learn, the things you learn about your colleagues, it's cool. And I'm glad that people who have been on this podcast come to it willingly and usually end up having a really good time as part of the celebration. So thank you. Alex, you made my day. You absolutely made my day with that email. So I thank you whole. Heartily. What a great place to end the podcast on. That's a nice note to end the podcast on. Thanks to Alex. If you want to email the podcast, you can. House of L at gmail.com is the way that you can do it. Thanks to our new sponsors of the podcast, the Autumn Paper Company. Go get your paper from the Autumn Paper Company. They're good people. I know the owner. The owner's a sweetheart. If you're looking for paper products of any kind, they can help you out. Call them, 773-551-0237. Again, that's 773-551-0237. And thanks to Cork and Kerry for jumping on board and being a part of our podcast. I'm glad that they wanted to be here, and you should know that they're going to be around for a Sox game. If you want to go and check it out, if you're going to the Southside Parade at the 50-yard line or the parade, and you know what that parade can be like. So thanks, Cork and Carry, Corkandcarrie.com for more information. I got a couple good episodes coming up in the next couple weeks. Make sure you check them out. Thanks for listening today. I appreciate it.
1: Hey!